Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Handler, and I'm a PhD student in the field of Sociology of Space Science, Space Law and Space Policy at the University of Sydney School of History and Philosophy of Science. While I was in Washington DC for the Space Generation Congress and the International Astronautical Congress, I paid a great visit to Vince Horton, the Chief Historian and Curator of the International Spy Museum in DC, and the host of their podcast, SpyCast. Dr. Horton specialises in military and intelligence history, with specific expertise in late World War II and early Cold War eras. He is a veteran of the US Army and served in the Balkans before receiving his Master's and PhD in Diplomatic and Military History from the University of Maryland. Our conversation was so enjoyable, and the room we recorded in so blissfully quiet, that I've had to split it into two parts, so look out for part two next week. In other news, you may have noticed that episodes are coming out more frequently. This is in large part due to the Patreon account that I've set up. Patreon presumably comes from the Latin term patron, which referred to a wealthy and powerful individual who lent their financial and political support to up-and-coming youngsters. Young recipients of such favour, called clientes, which is where our word client comes from, would generally gather on the stairs of their patron's abode and show the appropriate deference and devotion by doing small tasks and generally being useful. Patreon is a relatively new online form of this ancient custom, whereby I entreat you to sponsor my podcasting activities by signing up to support me financially with a set contribution each month. Distasteful as the idea of ever asking for money for anything is, the reality is that making a podcast does involve some costs for hosting services and editing software and the like. It's far better in my mind to seek your voluntary indulgence than to force you to listen to ads for socks at five minute intervals throughout the pod. The fact that the Romans did it makes it both more and less appealing. In any case, the URL is www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod. You can also find the link in the episode description or just Google Space Junk Podcast Patreon. As ever, I have to say that any opinions expressed by me in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of any organisations with which I am associated. Enjoy the podcast. I'm here with the fabulous Vince Horton, who is the historian at the International Spy Museum in Washington, DC. And I have on the table in front of me a signed copy of 
Vince's new book called Nuking the Moon and other intelligence schemes and military plots left behind on the drawing board. Would you like to tell us about it? Well, this is a book that I, I ran into some of the research for this while I was writing another book that also just came out. It was a very stodgy academic book focused on U.S. nuclear intelligence in the 1940s and 50s and not at all fun. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. It's good history. Uh, it's well-researched, uh, but it's, it's a straightforward history. But while I was researching and I kept running into these stories that I hadn't heard of before, which for someone who's supposed to be an expert in this field, when you run into things you've never heard of before, first time you're like, oh, that's interesting. Second or third time you're like, oh boy, right? You know, like I'm supposed to know this stuff. Like, why don't I? And the realization that I had is because there's a lot of things out there, a lot of programs, policies, missions, ideas that were funded, that were planned, that were even practiced in some cases, training went through that just never happened because they were canceled before they came to fruition. And in some cases they were canceled because the war ended or they were canceled because uh, some other technology superseded them. Um, but they weren't necessarily canceled because they were bad ideas, although they were bad ideas. And in most cases, these are things we look back today and laugh at. Uh, and we wonder what the hell were they thinking when they came up with these ideas. And so I made a compilation of those, right? So uh, these are a lot of stories, everything from uh, the CIA trying to turn a common house cat into a covert listening device to what the book title suggests, a plan prior to the Apollo missions of detonating a thermal nuclear weapon on the moon to essentially show the world uh, that we were, were more manly than the Soviets were, that we were walking around with more junk than they, they had. I mean, I, I've said this and I don't know how PG-13 this podcast is. It's, Not it was, at all. Okay, so it was a dick-sized contest. I mean, it was the idea is, you know, we're, we're more manly than you are. We can blow up something bigger than you can. And that's really what it came down to, is, is the idea of um, showing the world who's boss. And, of course, there's, beside those two stories, there's another 19 like it, uh, in this book. And, and really, this is tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I had my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. I had a twinkle in my eye while I wrote this. A lot of it's written in first person. There's a sh ton of pop culture references in here. Um, like the second page of the book references uh, Star Wars right off the bat. So this is not a serious history book, but it's full of serious history. Uh, and a lot of science. Um, a lot of space. Um, operations like Project Orion, which I don't know if your listeners know, was an attempt to uh, create a spacecraft powered by nuclear explosions, not nuclear power, that would be too normal, by literally chucking nuclear bombs out the back of the aircraft, spacecraft, have them explode in space and ride the shockwave. And the idea was you could get to Mars in a matter of days. And so there was planned missions in the 1950s to Saturn because you could get to Saturn in a couple weeks. Because, of course, in space, you don't slow down, right? There's no friction. So you just exponentially pick up speed as you keep chucking nukes out the back. It never happened, uh, although people to this day swear it actually would have worked. Um, I don't know how you get back once you're there because you use all the nukes to get there. Maybe you just kind of take the slow route on the way back, <laughs> which if you get far enough out, that's going to be a long trip. But, um, you know, these are policies that made a ton of sense when they were thought of the first time. Um, today, not so much. And that, that's really kind of a historical philosophy that I've, I've, I really embrace, is that too often historians apply our, our modern-day hindsight to what we're researching. Uh, and we judge. And I, and I think that judgment should not be in history. Mm. 
it's too easy for us to apply what we know in 2019 to what people were thinking in the 1950s. And so people will read this book and the, the absolute almost guaranteed reaction is, what the hell were they thinking? I'd prefer people to have that same question but told asked in a different way. Like, mm. what were they thinking? Like, why were they afraid? Why were they making these decisions? These are these are not random crazy scientists in the basement of the Pentagon. This is Carl Sagan. Mm. This is Leonard Reifel, who was the deputy director of the Apollo program, who worked under Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago. These are people who are considered real prominent scientists who at one point decided to go way outside of the box and thinking about ways to win World War II or in some cases the Cold War um, because of the world they lived in at the time. And so uh, for me, I, my mentality about everything history is, uh, even if you're going back you know, centuries, is take yourself out of 2019 and out of your comfortable living and go back and try to think of the ways you can put yourselves in the shoes of the historical actor. Because that's the only way that we actually learn anything from history. We can't mm. learn by looking back at what Napoleon did without trying to understand what Napoleon was feeling and thinking and doing at the time. Yeah. You're never going to get a simple, straightforward answer from me, so I'll just prepare you for that now. I'm for um, it. Yeah. This is great. Okay. So how did you come to get interested in this field? What drew you to the history of espionage and the history of the Cold War? Yeah, so I, I there's an origin story here, like every superhero. Um, Mine starts with a fascination of nuclear weapons. Um, and I started that fascination when I was seven years old, a um, little earlier than most people who... That's a dangerous fascination. It really was. At seven. Yeah. So there was a TV movie here in the United States called The Day After, which aired in, in 1983. And The Day After, you can find on DVD and stuff now. Um, it, was, it still is, to this day, the most watched TV movie in American history. Um, and it started late, but my parents let me stay up. They very questionable parenting decision on their part. Let me stay up late to watch the day after because everybody was. This is like more people watched this live than watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Like that's how much of an event this was. It turned out Ronald Reagan was watching it at the White House, right? This was a huge deal. And it basically it was a small Kansas town, Manhattan, Kansas, where Kansas State University is. How they reacted and, and fared during World War III. World War III breaks out, nukes flying everywhere. And it's kind of small town America and how World War III affected them. And it terrified everyone. My parents were terrified because they grew up during the Cold War. Ronald Reagan was terrified. Everyone was like, oh my God, I was the opposite. I was too young to really be terrified. I was like, this is amazing. Not that everyone died, but mm. that there are these weapons that were developed that they're telling me were developed to keep us, you know, keep the world from going to war, but at the same time, in the most powerful and deadly weapons ever devised and that sure, even at seven years, right even at seven years old i didn't even know what the word paradox meant but i got the idea mm. that one side is telling me that nuclear weapons have kept us safe for decades at this point and the other side is telling me that they're going to be our demise and this is this is when europe is exploding with the anti-nuke movement um particularly when ronald reagan was going to put short range and medium range missiles uh essentially um the Pershing II is the name of the nuclear weapon in Europe. So I'm watching, kind of not really understanding as a little kid, the, the news reports of like riots in Europe and protests. Um, and then there is the kind of the environmental movement in the United States, which is very big, no nukes and all that stuff. I just was wrapped up in it. And then at 10 years old, I know this is, you expected me to be like, I just thought it was a neat idea. You're always going to get a longer story from me. 
a book came out when I was 10 um, that is still kind of considered the Bible of the history of nuclear weapons. It's by Richard Rhodes, a book called The Making the Atomic Bomb. And it's 700 plus pages. At 10 years old, I understood like almost none of it. But the stories in it were neat. This is, this is about the Manhattan Project and the stories of the scientists and kind of coming from all over the world. And I love the fact that you had scientists coming from every, everywhere, all together. And to me, this was kind of, I didn't care what they were building. I didn't really kind of understand the broader concept, but it was almost like super friends kind of coming together, right? All the, the Avengers, right? Where you're bringing literally the smartest human beings on the planet and putting them one place and saying like, solve this problem. Mm. And for me, that was just cool. So I read it again at 12, I understand a little bit more. I read it again in high school and I understood almost all of it. It was by the time I had taken a physics class and an AP physics class. And then finally I read it in college and like got it from one end to the other and said, I wanna study nuclear weapons. I'm gonna go to grad school to study nuclear weapons. I'm gonna do the history side of it. And then halfway through college, I kind of realized I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I knew I wanted to study nuclear weapons, but I didn't really understand why. So I actually stopped going to college for four years and I joined the army. Um, I had the one mature moment in my life where I decided I was wasting my parents' money um, because in the United States, it costs a shitload of money to go to school and like every other civilized place on the planet. And so I said, all right, well, I'm gonna figure out what I wanna do before I kind of finish. So I joined the army and while I was in the army, I was deployed to the Balkans. And in the Balkans, I worked and as my bio says, very very nonchalantly, I worked with both civilian and military intelligence agencies in multiple capacities. That's literally word for word all I can say about it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I kind of got the, the, the intelligence bug. And I knew that I wanted to study the history of intelligence. Um, and then I went to grad school and somebody mentioned why not put them together and study the history of intelligence about nuclear weapons. And here we are. And so the other book, the more serious one, is about uh, World War II and early Cold War nuclear intelligence. Um, kind of how the United States was um, created an apparatus, an organization to find out what the Germans were doing during World War II, and then later to try to find out what the Soviets were up to in the early Cold War. And while I was researching that is when I ran into a lot of the stories for this, because there are a lot of nuclear weapons-related stories in here. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a lot of World War II spy-type stories in here, too, and even the military technology that's not necessarily directly in espionage-related Um kind of came out of some of that research also. Yeah, I think that there is a real fascination that many people have, as you say, with the paradox of nuclear weapons. And even today, with this increased sense of the need for security, but then on the other side of that, the feeling of a need for freedom. And I I often wonder whether the nuclear weapons of my generation, in a metaphorical sense, if not a physical one, will be around like, AI technologies and facial recognition and those sorts of more socially targeted um, well, like weaponry. I, I make like. this analogy all the time. I mean, cyber, kind of to use that as a big phrase that nobody really knows how to, to define, is really kind of the most analogous thing to the nuclear weapons revolution mm. of the 1940s and 50s, mainly because at the time nuclear weapons were first developed, all the top leadership in the government had no idea what to do with them. There were all the top generals had gone to West Point back in the 19 teens. And maybe some of them were engineers, but they had studied how to build bridges, mm. not how to split the atom. And certainly the top policymakers kind of, you know, whether it's a president or secretaries of state and defense, were all in their 60s and their 70s. They hadn't taken quantum mechanics under Heisenberg in the 1920s. They had no idea 
really how much of a game changer nuclear weapons were. I mean, Harry Truman just looked at them as just another weapon. Um, it was the younger generation at the time who working for think tanks, people like Bernard Brody, Herman Kahn, these were people who were in their 20s and sometimes their 30s that were the ones that were brought in to advise the government on how to react to this new weapon system, this new nuclear reality. Um, and you, so you have organizations like RAND, which mm. was stood up actually by the US Air Force. It stood for R&D. That's where RAND <laughs> comes from, Research and Development. Uh, like Institute for Defense Analysis, which was stood up by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is where all these heavyweight thinkers worked. And they were brought in to study why intelligence and nuclear weapons and intelligence about nuclear weapons and intelligence about you know, you know, delivery systems, space-based systems were such a game changer because mm. they're the only ones that kind of grew up in that generation. Same basic idea today, right? Most members of Congress can barely turn on a computer, let alone understand what hackers do and the yeah. difference between, you know, denial of service attacks or anything else. And so you bring in this younger generation, right, where you have people who grew up in the cyber world and are just kind of know it as kind of second nature. Mm. Whereas I'm on the kind of the cusp of both, right? I was young enough to kind of still be interested in how computers were changing. But my father, my father was a systems analyst. He was a computer guy. He actually was a naval computer programmer, worked for the government for decades. And near the end of his life, I had to kind of tell him how to like do stuff on a computer. Mm. Um, and that's what the politicians are today. Like very few yeah. of them have any kind of background. So it needs the younger generation. You bring them in to tell them what are the strategic implications of this kind of a world that we're in now. I mean, we saw that with um, the questioning that happened in Congress with Facebook being brought in and, and the questions that were being asked were just so completely yeah. off brief for, for anyone who's used Facebook or, or understands it. I think you're absolutely right. There's yeah. a generational divide. And maybe a lot of that is, and this is me being philosophical, but the way that we think about our existence and ourselves, like, you know, we've all heard um, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And maybe with the nuclear threat, there was a real physical reality to existence and the threat was a physical one. It right. was like, you'll be killed because atoms will split. Like at the very basis, physicality was being threatened. But today's people, and I would include myself and maybe you in that, have grown up with an online identity that in some ways is just who we think of ourselves as. Uh, it forms part of who we are. Right, or at least so who, an, we, an want, who we want to be, right? I yeah. Mean, it's it's I who mean, we want to portray ourselves as. Perhaps, but, it, but nonetheless, if we think about... Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having someone go into your social media account and, and do funny things to it. Um, yeah, I, it used to be really popular. I think these days people have stopped doing it because they, they realize how awful it is. But there's a real sense of being kind of um, violated right. in some way, in a very like tangible and, and real feeling. And that is something that I think the older generation, like my parents' generation, and older don't understand, they don't get it, that it's it's kind of like someone getting into your social media accounts or someone getting into your phone and reading your emails is the equivalent of someone coming into your home, sitting right. on your couch, like, you know, drinking out of a glass in your kitchen and leaving it on the bench and maybe smoking a cigarette before leaving. Like that's kind of the equivalent feeling for, um, for someone who's grown up with that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's going to get even worse. Um, I mean, futurists keep predicting that at some point very soon someone is going to be killed by some kind of a cyber attack. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and and this is not like Skynet and AI taking over in the Terminator. This is going to be where someone's going to hack a car or someone's going to hack a refrigerator and set a house on fire or someone's going to do something like that to where there's actually going to be you know deaths associated with it. But for the intelligence world, social media has been a game changer right. that, like beyond what anyone really thought it would be maybe 10 years ago, not only because of what we call open source intelligence, mm. because, you know, terrorists tend to be not that bright and they put a lot of information on social media that allows us to go get them. Uh, but also there's an interesting paradox when it comes to that because terrorists are using social media to recruit, they're using social media to um, train people how to make bombs and other things like that. So on one hand, you want to shut that down, but on the other hand, they're being so bad at operational security that they're just providing you all this wonderful information. But back when when I was younger, it would take a month to identify and to figure out a way to approach a new asset, someone mm-hmm. you're trying to recruit. So let's say I'm trying to recruit you. Sure. All right. I would, not just me, a team of us would research everything we possibly could about you. Um, and sometimes this would include breaking into your house when you're not there and kind of reading through diaries and reading through things that kind of give us an inside look into who you are as a person. This would mean kind of having informal, like, you know, quick meetings without them knowing with people you know. Um, this would mean pretending that we're uh, law enforcement personnel and talking to people about you, like for security clearance, whatever. It would take about a month for us to do it. Give me about two hours in your Facebook account and I know how to approach you. And that's because we put, even if we don't think we're putting stuff online, we're putting stuff online. Depending on what we like, if we find out that we're liking all these, you know, we rate dogs, Twitter feeds, or you're liking, um, you know, shelters and stuff, and it looks like you're an animal lover, I have an inside edge to recruit you. Mm. Because if I bump into you at a bar and I start talking about that I'm really depressed because my kitty just died, I know that you're going to react to that. You're going to respond to that. And that's true for everyone who puts sports team. Oh, it's I can put my favorite sports team online. What's the big deal? Well, how avid are you about your favorite sports team? Well, a lot of Americans are obnoxiously avid about their favorite sports team. And if they meet somebody in a bar, especially if they're not at home, right? Like, so I'm, a, I'm from Miami originally. I'm a fan of a lot of Miami sports teams while I live in Washington, D.C. If I run into somebody in a restaurant or a bar with like a Miami hat on, we're instantly friends, mm. right? And that's some, that's an in. That's a way that if anyone looked at my social media, especially my Facebook page, they'd see all the Miami stuff all over the place. We're just asking for it now. It made, it's made it dramatically easier. for us. We've even done exercises. We've gone into high schools uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area, and someone will volunteer, and I will take 10 minutes and look through their Facebook page and then be able to like recruit them like this. Because they've given me, especially teenagers, right? They've given me enough. Um, and it's not like it's just a game because the whole room realizes, you do this in front of the class, mm. that I would have been able to recruit this person. Because you can get really deep into people's psyche, right? That's, mm. Recruitment's about manipulation. And if I learned that two years ago your dad died, I own you. It sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. Because my story is I just lost my dad. And you just had that happen to you. So we we automatically have a connection. Now, my dad could be on vacation in Tahiti right now, mm. but my story is my dad just died, and that allows me to link up with you. That's stuff that used to take a long time for people to research to figure that out, and it's really made our ability 
and I use the word R, I'm not with the CIA, but intelligence, our ability to recruit people, our ability to do counterintelligence also, right? Because people put where they are online. Every picture you put is geotagged. It's not hard to track people. Um, social media, the internet has changed the game dramatically for how we do an intelligence work. Yeah. And then if you think about it, because what you're saying there is that the average user um, of, of a Facebook profile or something would think about it as their way of connecting with their friends. But right. actually what they're doing is creating a database voluntarily, giving permission for people to use their information, providing all of this very personal stuff. And that database can then be used. And as you've said, it could be used on a personal kind of targeting front where you decide that I'm the person you want to recruit and then you spend 10 minutes looking at my profile and off we go. But then there's also uh, data science techniques mm -hmm. to then mine that database and Facebook already groups you into certain types and on the basis of that can deliver targeted advertising, which is one of the ways they've been so successful. So I think, um, yeah, isn't the famous saying that if, if you don't have to pay for it, then you're the product. Right, exactly. Um, and, and Facebook, I think, is, is a great example of that, but so other forms of social media. And so if you think about then the way that we deliver targeted advertising, I think that in many ways, and, and you can talk more to this, more recently we've seen that the way that we spread disinformation or propaganda, um, or you know, as we, they like to call it, fake news, has changed dramatically too and become so much more targeted. It used to be that you dropped pamphlets out of aeroplanes right. flying overhead. Um, and now you can deliver something direct to someone's phone at the right moment, at the right time, in a way that's very compelling. Right, and, and, and the actual disinformation hasn't changed all that much, but the, the delivery mechanism is dramatically different, right? I mean, some of the most famous different disinformation campaigns in history had similar impact. We're able to sway an election in a certain direction. We're able to change entire continents' views towards someone. The, the most famous of these is the HIV-AIDS disinformation campaign that the Russians and the East Germans did in the 1980s, where this is what we call black propaganda. Uh, there's three different kinds of propaganda. There's white, gray, and black. Mm -hmm. uh, white is when it's obvious who it is, like you know, stamp made in the USA on the side of a bag of rice and send it into like a disaster area. That's white propaganda. Gray is propaganda where um, you can't identify who it's from, right? So if, if I say, you know, Putin likes, you know, stupping little boys, um, then um, that's gray propaganda if you can't identify where it comes from. But if I put out propaganda that says Putin likes little boys and it sounds like it's coming from the Chinese, but it's really coming from me, that's black propaganda. Yeah. Where it may, may make it look like it's coming from something completely different. Russians have gotten very good at black propaganda. They always have been very good at it. The idea was HIV AIDS, of course, was ravaging Africa. 30% of some African nations were infected. And they planted a story in a left-leaning Indian newspaper that Fort Detrick, Maryland, where the U.S. Army uh, Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, U.S. Army AMRID, is headquartered, had created HIV AIDS in the laboratory and either deliberately sent it to Africa or lost it in Africa as part of testing. And so AIDS was our fault. This Indian, like, village voice, little small newspaper picked it up, picked it up. It was planted in there by the KGB. And then newspapers around the, the world, mainly ones that were very much communist-leaning, picked that story up. And eventually it spread as though it was a story that wasn't created by the Soviets. It was created naturally. Or perfect. You know, there's still people in the United States today who think that the U.S. government created AIDS. Mm. Um, 
And then you've got stuff like obviously 2016 election, where um, same basic idea where you get this black propaganda where people think that there are certain groups uh, here in the United States that are spreading these lies, this fake news, when in many respects it's the Russians. Um, I got really mad at people. So Seth Rich was a, a, a he was a Democratic National Committee staffer who was murdered here in Washington D.C. The story came out a couple of days later that Hillary Clinton's campaign had murdered him because he was going to go leak the WikiLeaks, all this stuff about the campaign. Got really mad at, I got really mad at the Republicans for that because Seth Rich was a friend of a friend of mine and they were really upset about this. And it was clearly not the case. He was clearly killed because he was in the wrong place of town at three in the morning, not a place he should be. Washington's not the safest place in the middle of the night in certain areas like any major town. And it sounded like it was the right wing that was in the United States that was spreading these lies. And mainly because it was the right wing in the United States that was spreading them further. Mm. But we found out later on, actually relatively recently, that it was Russian intelligence that were planning these stories. Mm. And that's a great black propaganda campaign where we're actually blaming each other when it's Russia actually doing this. And we now know, looking back, that when Black Lives Matter was was big a couple years ago, a lot of the propaganda about them and about the Antifa movement and about some of the right-wing groups and about Democrats versus Republicans and women's rights and abortion access and all this stuff was being inflamed by Russian intelligence. Mm. And we had no idea. We thought it was each other. We're at each other's throats. Now, the Russians would not have been able to succeed in doing that if we didn't already kind of have these fissures in society anyway. Sure. They didn't create these divisions, but they identified them yeah. very well. And then they stuck a crowbar in there and just spread them apart as far as they right. possibly and, could. And use the infrastructure that already exists right. in order to do that. Right. And used, I mean, look, Facebook was intended to make it to where we could be connected, right? To where you could stay connected with your friends back home, right? I don't, I'm not a person who picks up the phone and like calls friends and chats, right? Mm. Um, so I kind of keep track of what life is happening back in Miami and with other places through Facebook. Mm. I'm not active, constantly posting. But I'm like a Facebook stalker in respect. Like I'll kind of watch what other people are doing. Mm. That to me is a really great service because it's kind of how I can kind of keep in touch a little bit. But I do understand like any technology, and this is true about all, you know, not all, but most technologies is their dual use. Yep. Right? You know, everything that's made for good can potentially be used for bad. I mean, nuclear weapons are a great example, right? Splitting the atom is clean energy. Right, as expensive as nuclear power is, and there's the waste problem, but it's carbon free. It's it's not going to cause climate change. In many cases, if we had nuclear power everywhere, we wouldn't be talking about climate change. We'd be talking about waste issues, but that's a whole other ball game. But of course, it makes nuclear weapons. Mm. Whereas the internet is wonderful for instant communications. It's wonderful for all the ways we connect ourselves. For the fact that I can order something on Amazon and get it this afternoon. For the fact that I can email people from all around the world, but of course it has its drawbacks as well. I mean, dual use technology is tricky. I mean, space is a great example of this, right? The same, the same rocket that put Americans in space was used to launch weapons from Germany to Great Britain during World War II. The V2 basically is the basis for the early Mercury program rockets. Werner von Braun designed them both, right? Mm. And of course, anything that could put something into 
uh, deeper orbit could be used as an ICBM to drop weapons all around the world. So Absolutely. Yeah, and so dual use across the board. And I think the internet people are starting now to realize we had this long, you know, 15 year time when it was like, yay internet, right? Internet commerce, it's so wonderful. And then everyone said, oh, somebody figured out how to weaponize this. And now we have to deal with the repercussions. Vince, tell me about espionage in space. Well, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I mean, ever ever since we realized that we could get up into space, we realized that space could be a huge asset for doing intelligence collection. Um, this is not only true for the obvious, like putting satellites into space that actually have cameras that can look down, um, until anti-satellite weapons were developed, you know, ones that worked in the late, you know, the 1970s, uh, and until modern satellite systems became, you know, networked and so where cyber could potentially harm them, they're essentially invulnerable, right? So a satellite in space, the best you could do is hide from it. Um, but for the most part, it was something that you could never stop from looking down into your territory. And that was realized from the very beginning. Um, so the minute we were able to get things up into space, we put things up into space with cameras uh, to look down. But that's only one aspect of how space has been involved in intelligence. Clearly, you look at the signals intelligence side, and it's incredibly important as well. Every modern signal uh, can be intercepted here on Earth. It doesn't just doesn't go linearly or horizontally from one point to the other. It goes straight up also. So anything that we're broadcasting finds its way into space as well. So there are satellites that have SIGINT packages, so signals intelligence packages that can eavesdrop from space um, just because signals find their way up there as well. Um, but even on the less collection side and the more on kind of intelligence operations side, you could not do anything today without the communications systems that have been developed for by satellite in space and without the geo, kind of the global positioning capabilities that have been developed. Um, you know, whether it's special operations, um, which is very linked very closely to intelligence operations. I mean, especially since 9-11, they're, they're essentially at the hip at this point or just basic intelligence collection operations. Knowing where you are and to be able to communicate back uh, is the name of the game, right? It used to be, the hard part wasn't necessarily getting the information, taking the picture or stealing the document. The hard part was transmitting that back to where it could be analyzed and used, right? So I can go in, I can sneak into a warehouse or into an office building and take a picture of a secret document. But then I have to get that film. This is back for kids out there. We used to actually have film inside cameras that was taken out and then developed and stuff. Getting that film back to the United States to where it could be developed and analyzed meant actually having to meet with somebody or having to do it's called a dead drop. Um, that's a great place to get caught. Right? That's where most spies were caught, either putting down a dead drop or meeting with an asset or a handler. That's how you get executed. That's how you get caught. Now you take a picture with your phone, you hit send, and it's immediately back at headquarters because of satellite technology, right? And it's not just cell phone stuff. I mean, you're talking about the ability to instantaneously communicate with anywhere on Earth. That is only because of space. Mm. Um, and so what you're seeing now um, is World War III, if it happens, the first shots are not going to kill anybody. The first two real kind of theaters of World War III are gonna be in cyberspace and in space space, mm. right? To where you're gonna launch all sorts of cyber attacks and then you're gonna launch anti-satellite weapons and to try to knock out most, if not all, of your enemy's ability to see and hear and talk. Right, or even a non-kinetic 
sort right. of like soft kill option. We're not very good at non-kinetic things around here. We're talking about the United States. <laughs> uh, we're good at breaking stuff. No, yes, there are non-kinetic options. Um, there are certainly satellite negation options that involve not just blowing stuff up. Um, you know, whether it's using kind of things that are networked or um, just getting in the way in some cases. There are certain ideas of just kind of blocking, literally putting one satellite in front of the other so they can't see down. Uh, it seems easier just to blow the damn thing up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and that, so that's what we're talking about. Counterintelligence really falls in that framework as well. It's, it's now you have to worry about the theater of space more than you ever did before. Even in the 1960s, I mean, one of the stories in my book is about what's called the Man Orbiting Laboratory, the MOL, which was going to be an intelligence gathering platform in space where we were going to put a couple people in it and they would orbit around the Earth and then they would use that as a way to spy on people down there. Now, what's the difference between that and a satellite? Well, the satellite's taking pictures like all the time. Mm. The satellite's taking pictures of clouds. The satellite's taking pictures of rocks. The satellite's not really differentiating from one thing to the other, particularly when you're talking about film. And nowadays, you can be a little more discerning about what you're taking pictures of. The MOL, the people inside, would use a spotting scope to find an interesting thing to take a picture of and actually would be able to take a picture of that on demand. It would also be able to uh, redirect the satellite in space to take pictures of things by tasking, right? So if all of a sudden the, you know, the Asian... The Indian subcontinent was a problem. Uh, it could kind of retask itself and, and scoot over there using like retro rockets mm. uh, to take pictures of what was going on between, you know, in Kashmir. Or if the Chinese or the Russians had just launched a new satellite in space, it could do inspection and then potentially negation mm. um, of those satellites. So this is a program that was fully an intelligence program. And really understanding intelligence in space, you understand the fact that all of our space platforms that are military-based, for the most part, are under the auspices of the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, which is an intelligence agency. Um, and the agency that does most of the stuff from photographs from space and everything else is another intelligence agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So space, you know, it may not be the final frontier, but maybe cyberspace we're going to be, you know, we're still a little bit behind where we are in space travel and space policy, but it's clearly a place where we can do a huge amount of intelligence collection. Even, even we, I mean, it's beyond secret at this point, but we do have some massive platforms in space doing spectroscopy and seismology studies uh, from orbit, which is insane. Um, and to me, uh, it's very difficult to create countermeasures for. Mm. Um, if today, the so is now open skies seems to be being torn into shreds. If today the Soviets, uh, Soviets, the Russians flew a spy plane over the United States, we'd have every right to shoot it down. And vice versa, right? Mm. Can't shoot down satellites without starting a war. Yep. Even if it's obvious it's a spy satellite, even if it's obvious that satellite is looking at your top secret everything, if you launch an ASAT weapon and it shoots down another country's satellite, you're probably just have started a war. I mean, the Chinese almost have started a war when they shot down their own satellite back in 2012 or whatever it was. Uh, 2007, I think. Well, they shot one down in 07 and then they did another one. Or we maybe we did. You guys did. Another Operation Vent Frost. Yeah, so we did. Um, to show how it was done. Right. To, to say, 
well, you know, it was going to degrade and we were worried mm -hmm. it was going to land in an inhabited area, so we're going to shoot it down. But, right, and India did their one this year as well. So even then, people kind of get a little bit picky about people's capability of doing that. Um, and that's not something that we want to try to do for other countries mm. uh, without the idea that we're going to pick a fight. Um, so basically right now there's no real countermeasure other than hiding, trying to camouflage, um, putting stuff inside buildings, but even in that case it doesn't always work uh, because where I don't have the technology to x-ray glasses through your clothing, the U.S. government may have the technology to look through buildings and other things. I'm not saying they do or they don't. They do. Um, I mean, certainly using things like IR and UV and, and different kind of technologies that are now so ubiquitous that you see TV shows using them. Um, and then things that go even beyond that. Mm. And of course, space enables uh, internet and cyber. Right. Well, yeah, anything when you're talking about the communication side of things too, right? It's, it's not only allows for communications, but allows for us to interrupt communications. You know, whether it's talking about using cyber attacks or using um, the internet to take down other systems, whether it's space-based systems or, or land-based systems. Um, I, I think that um, that's why we take it so seriously here in the United States. Um, that's why there was an outcry about our inability to launch our own platforms in this space. Um, you know, Congress was so nearsighted that they're like, well, you know, when the, when the Challenger exploded in 1986, that was a bit of a hiccup. There was still kind of a kind of come to Jesus moment afterwards saying that, you know, like we can't keep killing our astronauts. And then when the Columbia disintegrated, which was 15 years later, that ended the space shuttle program basically. And that we're at the point where like we really don't have the launch platforms anymore to put stuff into space. So we've been kind of piggybacking off the Russians. Fortunately, we now have this public-private partnership where you've got like SpaceX and other things that are putting stuff into space because I can imagine, and the military and the, the intelligence community imagines how hard life will be if we can't indigenously put up our own stuff into space and we have to you know, beg the Russians to do it for us. Mm. Um, it's not gonna work out very well. Um, so now you see an invigorated NASA public-private partnership with some of these private companies looking to do things like going back to the moon, not just because the moon is there and we want to nuke it again, uh, but because it, it, it rebuilds our capability to do our own things in space, which we realize are going to be very, very important moving forward. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to find out more about anything mentioned in this podcast or you want to get in contact, you can send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Annie Hanma. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.